Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're looking at verses 22 through 32 this morning. You can find it on page 910 in the Bibles that are provided there in the pews. If you don't have a Bible, we want to give you a Bible, and so you'll notice the blue and white Bible right there in the pew in front of you. Please take that as you go. We would love for you to have the Word of God. That's our gift to you for being with us this morning. Sometimes it is not important for us to know who fills a position. The people standing in line in front of you or the people in the cars next to you. Now you could swap those out for other people, funnier people, more attractive people, people that you have good relationships with, but it's not going to shorten your time. It's not going to shorten your weight. You may really like your mailman. You've developed a relationship with your mailman. Your mailman enjoys playing pranks on your kids. And so when he comes to deliver your mail to the door, he knocks on the door but holds the doorknob so the kids are pulling like crazy trying to get it open, right? You love that guy, but just, you know, if you lose that guy, your mail still arrives. Same way with your pizza. There's some positions that, quite honestly, you, you don't want to know who's in that position. Like the person in the stall next to you kind of makes what you have to do and what they have to do a little bit more awkward, right? And yet there are some positions that are really, really, really important for us to know. We need to know them. We want to know them. The politicians that you're voting for or a blind date, is it the, the handsome, well-dressed man who is talking to his financial advisor about retirement options, I don't know, while reading Jonathan Edwards? Or is it the seemingly disheveled slouch who is calling his mom asking for money while he's playing his Nintendo 3DS? Makes a difference. Who will you marry? Who will you work for? Who is in leadership? Knowing who that person is who occupies that position matters. Well, this morning we come to the most important person and the most important position that you could ever want to know or ever need to know. The question is, who is this Jesus? And what does it mean that he is both Lord and Christ? Now let me deal with those terms for just a minute. Christ is not a last name. It's not like Jesus was filling out a job application and wrote first name Jesus, last name Christ, and that Joseph and Mary were Ma and Pa Christ. No, Christ is a title. It means the anointed one. God's anointed one to be the Messiah, to be the deliverer, the savior of his people. That word Lord, well, that's familiar to us. We kind of get the idea what that means. It means ruler or owner, master, to be a, a king. Only this king is not limited to any geographical boundary or to one nation of people. His power is not limited by the size of his army. This Lord is Lord over all. Over the heavens and over the earth, over nature and over nations, over sickness, over disease, over death, over demons, even over the hearts and tongues of men. To be Lord in this sense is to be God. And so this person, 
This position matters. This passage is going to tell us that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And what's even more than that is that we all crucified him. We crucified him by trying to find our hope, our salvation, our deliverance in other things, in our jobs, in our performance, in our trinkets, in our earthly pleasures. We crucified him by trying to be Lord over our own lives, to live as if this is my world and I am God. And so if this passage, if he is who this passage says that he is, both Lord and Christ, and we are in some way responsible for his death, then I hope you understand that there is no greater person or position that you and I could ever know. We need to answer that question, who is this Jesus? What has he done? And what does it mean to follow him? Now this morning, we're going to deal with just that first term. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? And next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the second term. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? And what we're going to see from this passage this morning is that Jesus, this Jesus is a man attested by God and witnessed by many whose death and resurrection were according to plan to prove that he is the Christ. Now, I know that that is a mouthful, but we're just going to be breaking that really long sentence down. And so with that in mind, let's turn our hearts and our attention to Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 32. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, may I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. So who is this Jesus? Well, verse 22 tells us first that he was a man that was attested by God and witnessed by many. Now, what I just read to you was point number two of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. 
Remember what has just happened, or or maybe if you're just joining us, let me just bring you up to speed on what has just happened. Just over 50 days earlier, Jesus of Nazareth, a moral teacher at the least, was killed. He was crucified by the Roman authorities at the request of the Jewish religious leaders, but three days later, he rose from the grave. And for the next 40 days, He continued to teach his followers about the kingdom of God. And before he ascended into heaven, he commissioned them to be witnesses to his resurrection and to his ascension. You will be my witnesses. And in order to equip them to do that, he promised to send the Holy Spirit to them, to enable them, to equip them to do what he has called them to do. And so what we have here is the first recorded sermon notes. This is not the whole sermon. These are the notes. Okay, He doesn't preach for five minutes. He preaches with many, many words just like I do. Right? I learned from Peter. But Peter's one of the Jesus' greatest apostles, and he's doing just what Christ has called him to do. He is bearing witness to the resurrection of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, something amazing has just happened just minutes before. The risen and ascended Lord Christ had poured out the Holy Spirit upon all of his followers, all 120 of them. And there was this sound like a tornado, like a mighty rushing wind. There was this appearance of divided tongues as a fire that that rested upon each and every one of them. And they began to speak in different languages. Languages of of these people who were there, languages they did not know, so that all of these people, these men and women from Israel who had gathered together, who had come to Jerusalem from all over the Mediterranean and all over the Middle East to celebrate this festival Pentecost, could come to terms with that all-important question, who is this Jesus? This is what Pentecost is about, right? It's not about tongues, It's not even about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit all by itself. It's answering that question, who is this Jesus? In his first point, we looked at last week, that pouring out of the Holy Spirit was a sign that the day of the Lord is at hand, that this coming day of judgment has come upon us, and that the the sign of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is proof that we are in the last days. In pouring out the Holy Spirit upon his people, God has fulfilled his promises to restore Israel, that he will judge the nations, and that he will bring his people to himself. And so the last days are now upon us. And so he pled with them, in verse 21, to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And so points number two and number three that we're going to look at this morning and then next week He's going to clarify who that Lord and Savior is. This bewildering event that they had just seen and heard was proof that the resurrected Jesus is both Christ and Lord. Okay? So now Peter begins point number two 
in verse 22, and he's addressing the crowd again, just like he did in point number one back in verse 14, men of Israel. Now, grammarians understand this as a vocative. What a vocative is, is like you are addressing your audience. So like I'm saying, Redeemer Church, and I'm doing that for the purpose of getting your attention because I'm about to, to dispel something that has personal implication for all of you. You need to get this. George, listen to me here, okay? You got it, right? Pay attention to what I'm about to say to you. My wife does this same thing to me when I've usually done something that requires repentance and faith on my part, right? Chet. I mean, you can hear the implication in the tone, right? Now, just because we're not males who are dwelling in Jerusalem at that time, Peter's address still has implication for all of us. Just like them, we too need to hear these words. And the words that we need to hear are about Jesus. This Jesus, a man from Nowheresburg, Nazareth. I mean, that's, that's like him saying so-and-so is from Shabance or from Flatville, Illinois. Can anything good come out of Flatville, Illinois? I mean, he's highlighting the fact that Jesus, yes, was indeed a man. He, he ate, he drank, he slept, he had to learn his alphabet just like you and me. But this Jesus of Nazareth was also attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. God attested to Jesus through these mighty works. That word attested it means confirmed, approved, recommended, or proven. So God is proving who Jesus is through these mighty works, these miracles, these signs and wonders that he performed through him. He showed us, he verified who Jesus really was. And, and we see just, if you read the gospel accounts, you read the quality and the quantity of these miracles. Quality, just like, he's not healing people of back pain here, right? I mean, as great as that is, I mean, he's raising people from the dead, right? And quantity, I mean, John says, look, if we wrote down everything that Jesus ever said or ever did, we, we wouldn't have enough books to contain all of those things. But God is attesting to Jesus when, when he healed, when he calmed the storm, when he raised the dead, when he cast out demons, when he forgave sin. Each and every sign or wonder or mighty work that we read about in the Gospels is evidence that God is bearing witness to who Jesus really is. And God even said as much twice. So if you go home today and you read Mark, Gospel of Mark, you can look at Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 9. You've got Jesus' baptism and what's called the transfiguration, where Jesus appears in radiant glory, right? And in both of those places, God thunders down from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But God is not the only one who is bearing witness to Jesus. Here we have Peter, along with the other 11 apostles, bearing witness to his name. I mean, this was part of their job description, according to chapter 1, verse 22. They had to replace Judas because he had 
walked away from his allotment, his share in this ministry, and they needed to have 12 witnesses to Christ's resurrection. And so here it is. That's part of their job. Now, I am here, and I'm preaching about an event that I did not see with my own physical eyes or hear with my own physical ears, but I wasn't there, but Peter was, right? Peter's preaching about the things that he was eyewitness to. He had followed Jesus for three years. He heard him preach and teach. He saw him minister. He, he was there when Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle. Even Peter himself was given power to cast out demons in Jesus' name. He saw the glory of the transfiguration. He was there when Jesus was arrested. He denied Jesus three times. He knew that Jesus died on the cross. He saw where the tomb was, and three days later, he ran back there to see it empty. He was there, eyewitness to the many appearances of the resurrected Jesus. And he, along with many others, saw the resurrected Jesus ascend into heaven. But he was not alone either. Jesus was so well known during that three years of his ministry that even these travelers from places like Mesopotamia and Cappadocia and Asia and Egypt and Libya had also heard of Jesus. And we know that because of what Peter says in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. I'm not the only one who has seen and heard the many signs and wonders and miracles that Jesus performed. You were witness to Jesus' ministry firsthand. You yourselves know that this is no ordinary man, but he had divine authority to preach and to teach and to heal. He was in your midst. You saw him too. You know what he did. Signs and wonders and miracles that he had performed. Now, now let me just address skeptics for a minute. Do you realize that at this point, it would have only taken a couple of people to stand up and say that didn't happen for this whole thing to fall apart? Only a couple of people to stand up and say, nope, that's not how it went. It's, and then Christianity was done. But that's not what happened. Right? I mean, look at, look at what he's saying here, right? They, they, too, were witnesses of this, of all of these things. And yet no one stands up to, to disprove it. Now, Jesus, the area of Jesus' ministry was not large, Right? It was probably like here to Springfield, here to Chicago, Max, but more, most of his ministry took place within basically the equivalent of here to Decatur. This is a small area. For three years, he's going back and forth all through this, and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people are following him. Mark calls it a polyplethora, a vast multitude of people who are following Jesus around. They, they knew, they saw, they heard. The word had certainly made it to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, so no doubt there were many in this crowd who had seen and heard of Jesus. And if he were just a man, all it would have taken was a couple of people to jump in and say no. 
Jesus didn't walk on water. It was a sandbar. They were like five feet away from the shore. The water was like three feet deep, and all his disciples were jumping out and kind of getting down, and so he could walk on their backs. That's all that was. Jesus didn't raise Lazarus from the dead. Guy was asleep in his bed. I live right next to him. I heard him snore every single night. He didn't cause that blind man to see. The guy just had dirt in his eyes. The lame to walk? No, the guy just had a rock in his sandal. That's all it would have taken. But that's not what happened. No one stood up and said, nope, it's not the way it went. They all knew. No one disagreed because they had all heard of Jesus or seen Jesus or knew someone who had come into contact with Jesus and seen the signs, they'd seen the wonders, they'd seen the miracles, family members, friends, or even themselves having been healed by him. He had performed them in their midst and they themselves knew. And no one said any different. Peter goes on to say that we are all here to tell you that though he died on the cross and was buried, this man lives. So in verses 32 and 33, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And I don't think he means just Jesus' followers there. Going on, he says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he's saying, look, you don't, you don't trust my word. You can't take my word for it. Take, talk to all these people who are around you. Talk to these 120 other followers of Jesus who are right here with me. They can testify that all, to all that he has said and done. But even you yourselves know. He goes beyond that. He says, look, you too are witnesses. You saw this. And if nothing else, you were here to witness the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. All of this happened right before your eyes, before your seeing and your hearing. Surely you cannot question the fact that you are now witnessing this right here and right now. Surely you know all that he has done. Clearly, Jesus is risen. He is alive. And that means something because of who he is. And because of his position. Now, I wonder, I wonder what your reaction to the testimony of Peter and the other followers of Jesus is at this point. And you can add to that the, the reaction of the crowd. Because we're told in verse 41 that 3,000 responded that day in repentance and faith. They were baptized and added to their number. And so what that means is that there were 3,120 people at least who were seeing and believing and bearing witness to Christ. Now we are a skeptical society. We live in a day that is marked by individualism and self-pursuit in which it is often profitable for us to lie or to pretend or to exaggerate. But we have to keep in mind that is not how that society operated. You see, in that day, the function of society was dependent upon honesty and truthfulness. People were killed, they were imprisoned, or they were banished for telling lies and bearing false witness. And if you read through the book of Acts, you know that Peter and the other eyewitnesses will be hunted for what they are proclaiming. 
They're willing to die for it. Friends, this is their eyewitness account that they will suffer and die for. Would you die for a lie? And if not, what does that say about their testimony? But there's even more to it than that. Because you see, in hearing this, in reading these words, in hearing them proclaimed, we too have become witnesses. You see, the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to the attestation of Scripture that these are the words of God. And so what that means is that we too are seeing and hearing all of this that is happening before them, all of this that is regarding Jesus, and we're all liable for it. And so you basically, at this point, you have three options in response to this witness that you yourselves are now a part of. You can continue on like the mockers, say, no, they're just filled with new wine. Dismiss it, walk away, scoffing at the work of God. You can, like the astonished but perplexed crowd, amazed and befuddled, but not coming to any decision, just saying, what does this mean? Remaining in a, in a state of agnosticism. Or you can respond in repentance and faith. And just alongside these 3,120 on this day, bear witness to his name. Those are your three options to what we have just witnessed. So the resurrected Jesus was attested by God and witnessed by many. Second, whose death and resurrection were according to plan. Friends, Jesus is no random moral teacher. He was attested by God. He was resurrected by God. He was exalted by God. And all of this happened according to God's definite plan and prior knowledge. We look there at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of, foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Friends, Peter could not be clearer. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was de God's determined plan. The whole thing was fixed. The whole thing was set up. It's no accident. It was intentional. It was purposeful. It was God's plan from the very beginning. This was no surprise. It's no surprise to Jesus, and it was certainly no surprise to God. This was ordained by God. It was his fixed purpose for Jesus to come and to suffer and to die and to rise from the grave. God foreknew it because God had foreordained it. This set plan was known to Jesus as well. So if you read through the gospel accounts, you're given clear indication that Jesus knew what was going to happen. That he was predicting his death and subsequent resurrection. One such example is, is Mark chapter 10 verse 45 where Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or John chapter 10, verse 18, where he said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so 
all of this was pre-planned so that when it happened, and Jesus tells his disciples this much, so that when this happens, you would know and you would believe that I am indeed the Son of God. So this was no accident. This was proof that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. His death was at the heart of God's definite plan of salvation. And that plan included his betrayal, it included his suffering, it included his gruesome death on a cross at the hands of lawless men. Friends, do you realize that the Bible presents no discrepancy between God's sovereignty and human responsibility? That this was according to God's foreordained plan from before the foundation of the world and lawless men are responsible for killing him. But this wasn't just lawless men that he was addressing, those who were specifically held the nails in their hands. But Peter is saying this to the nation of Israel, first and foremost, and secondarily to us, that you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, it wasn't just those who physically delivered Jesus up. It wasn't those who had chained him, who beat him, who whipped him, who mocked him, who condemned him to death, those who stood in approval of his condemnation, or even those who drove the nails into his hands and feet and hung him there on that cross. It was everyone who rejected him, everyone who turned away from him, everyone who did not respond to all that he has said and all that he has done out of pride, or busyness, or fear, or neglect. Everyone who was apathetic or indifferent toward him. And friends, if we think about it on those terms, we quickly realize, you know what, that's, that's all of us. That's you, and that's me. It was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. But Christ's death was not the only part of God's predetermined plan. Jesus also rose from the grave according to plan. The book of Acts, for good reason, could be called the gospel of the resurrection. I mean, the resurrection is mentioned 37 times in Acts. It holds central place in every recorded sermon or speech given by the apostles. Their very witness centered on the reality that Jesus rose from the grave. By all means, it was in their job description. Look at verse 24. In verse 24, Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is an amazing statement. There are two metaphors at work here. The first one, in raising Jesus up, God loosed the pangs of death. And so picture chains binding him in death, holding him imprisoned in the grave. God loosed them. God broke them in two. According to the working of his great might, God cut the bonds that held him in death, and Jesus rose to life again. That's amazing. Who has the power to do that but God? But there's another metaphor at work here. The pangs of death. A pang is an intense physical and or emotional pain. It's sheer agony, and it's used most often in Scripture to describe birth pangs, the pain of childbirth. 
And what's amazing here is this metaphor is not describing the pain that we experience in death, though that could be painful. Or it's not describing the pain of eternal condemnation that those who die in their sin experience, though there's certainly everlasting pain of death in that, in that sense. You see, just like, just like with pregnancy, birth pangs are a sign of the inevitable, that that baby is coming. And there's nothing that you can do about it. You can't hold it in. You cannot delay. You cannot stop to pack your bags or to grab a sandwich or even to park your car. You have got to get her to the hospital and get her there right away because that baby is coming. And some of you know this very, very well. Some of us are still learning. Right? We had, it was kid number five before we had a broken water. C-section every time, so we didn't really get to experience that immediacy, but even then it was pretty eventful. When she goes into labor, that baby is coming, and it is impossible to hold it in. And what Peter is saying here is just like that impending birth, it was impossible for Jesus to stay dead. That it was death that was experiencing pangs trying to keep Jesus in the grave, but it was not possible for him to be held by it. He could not be held there. The grave could not hold him. Why? (laughs) Man, so many reasons. I mean, even more amazing than the fact that God, the Almighty God raised Jesus from the dead was the fact that death could not hold on to Jesus. And death could not hold on to Jesus, one, because death cannot overcome the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Number two, death could not hold on to Jesus because God will honor his covenant promises to deliver his people from all their enemies, the greatest of which is death. Number three, Death could not hold on to Jesus because Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life and death is the punishment for sin. And because Jesus did not commit a sin, death had no claim on him. Number four, death could not hold on to Jesus because his sinless sacrifice defeated the power of sin and death. And so death no longer has any claim on anyone. Death no longer has any sting. And number five, because the perfect son of God, simply because of who he is, could not be contained by it. The grave simply could not hold him. Now why does this matter to us? I mean, why does it matter that the grave could not hold on to Jesus? Well, because it reveals to us who he is and what his position as Christ has accomplished. And if death could not hold on to him, then it will not be able to hold on to any who are in him. If you are in Christ, death cannot hold you. You see, Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. The eternal pangs of death are what we all owe for our sin. But Romans also tells us that Jesus was raised for our justification so that we might be declared righteous in God's eyes. 
so that when God looks upon us, He does not see sinners, He sees the righteousness of Christ. Jesus' resurrection from the grave proves that God's wrath for sin has been satisfied by His sacrifice. He has paid the wages of sin so that all of those who believe in Him will not eternally perish, but will have everlasting life with God forever. And if the grave could not hold on to Jesus, then Paul's conclusion in Romans chapter 8 is this, what then shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is absolutely nothing. Not death, not pain, not trial, not tribulation not suicide bombers or shooters. None of it can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what his suffering, his death, and his resurrection according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God has secured for those who crucified him. If they would just call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And so Jesus is a man attested by God and he's witnessed by many whose death and resurrection was according to plan. Third, in order to prove that he is the Christ. Paul's not done yet. He's got to bring it all the way home. And to bring it all the way home, to prove his point that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Savior, once again, Peter turns to Scripture. I mean, what an example for us. Over and over and over again already in the book of Acts, we have seen Peter's view of Scripture coming to bear and how he interprets it in light of Jesus. And so in verses 25 through 28, Peter applies Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Psalm 16 is one of those psalms where it starts out and David's talking, and you're like, okay, David is talking about himself But as you keep on going, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is far bigger than David. Something else is going on here. And so Peter, quoting from Psalm 16, says, For David says concerning him, that is concerning Jesus. Get this. Pay really careful attention here. David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. And you will make make me full of gladness with your presence. Now David, as God's surprising choice of the anointed king, he had a unique relationship with God. We learn from the Old Testament that David was a man after God's own heart. Verse 30 right there calls him a prophet. God had promised David that one of his descendants would dwell on the throne forever. But for David to say that the Lord was always before him, that the Lord was at his right hand, man, that kind of stretching it even for God's chosen king. But to say that God will not abandon his soul to Hades or let him, God's holy one, not see corruption, guys, that's just going a bit too far. 
unless, unless David is not talking about himself, but of a future king from his line, a holy one who would not see corruption and would overcome the grave. What Peter is telling us is that this psalm is actually David's response to God's promise of a future heir and eternal king. That his heart is glad, his tongue rejoiced. He lived in hope because he knew that he would not be abandoned. He had a future, and this future holy one will not see corruption. And as time went on, God revealed to his people through the mouths of prophets that there would be a future king from the line of David, a holy one, a Christ to come, who would deliver his people. And it clearly wasn't all of these kings that were leading up to that because because David's reign was short-lived. But yet, the promise remained. But you know what Peter says next in verses 29 through 32 is shocking. He says, brothers, may may I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he, that is Jesus, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. He said, look, David died. We know where his tomb is. It's right down the road. We can go visit it anytime we want. David clearly wasn't speaking about himself or even the promise that God made to him. Instead, he was speaking of the Christ. And Peter affirms that David was a prophet who foresaw and spoke about Jesus' resurrection. That it was Jesus' soul that was not abandoned to Hades, that is death. That it was Jesus' flesh that did not see corruption. But even more than that, Jesus is the Lord that was always before him at his right hand. At the right hand of God, rejoicing David's heart, making him glad, instilling him with hope. God made known to David that Jesus is the path of life. And that Christ's presence is what filled David with gladness. This vision that David saw was of the exalted Christ. It was of the resurrected Jesus. Through Jesus, God's promise to David was fulfilled. Through Jesus, he makes known to us the path of life. He is the incorruptible one. He is the son of David who will rule as king forever. And as a prophet, Peter says that in some way, David saw and understood that God's promise to him would be fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. David's prophecy, 1,000 years earlier of the resurrected Jesus is proof that he is indeed the Christ who would deliver God's people from all of their enemies and restore God's faithful to himself forever. He 
is the Lord that is always before him. And how did Peter do that? How did Peter prove that? Point number one from his sermon, the resurrected Christ is the one who has poured out the Holy Spirit on you, on those that you are now seeing and hearing in fulfillment of Joel chapter two. And so what that means is the day is the, of the Lord is upon us. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And point number two, the death and resurrection of Jesus happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, according to Psalm 16, as proof that he is the Christ. And this Jesus God raised up. And of that, we all are now witnesses. And so the implication for us is the same as it was back in verse 21. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Friends, we have all sinned against God. We've all tried to live our lives without him as if this is my world and I am God. But he rose from the grave so that all of those who would turn away from their sin and believe in his name might live with him forever. And if we are in him, then we can be sure that God will not abandon our soul to Hades. And because the Holy Spirit is at work in us to lead us to holiness in Christ, that he will neither let his holy ones see corruption. But you know, even more than that, the confidence that David had in Psalm 16 can be yours. The security, the guarantee that, that Peter had in the Holy Spirit, in receiving the Holy Spirit, is offered to you. And so like David, you can say, the Lord is always before me, therefore I will not be shaken. We can say, in him my heart is glad and my tongue will rejoice. My flesh will dwell in hope. Things might be really difficult right now, really confusing, really hard, and I don't understand. But what I do know is this, that God will not abandon my soul nor let me see corruption because through Christ's resurrection, I too will rise. God has made known to me the paths of life and will make me full of gladness with his presence. And all of that is ours. Like Peter, I can be confident because Jesus will pour out the Holy Spirit on all who call upon his name. And so friends, all of these promises and more are ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would want that. I hope that you would want that. Though you crucified him, he offers you this. And so call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So who is this Jesus? Jesus is a man attested by God and witnessed by many whose death and resurrection were according to plan to prove to us that he is indeed the Christ. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these wonderful truths. God, if I could ask one thing, I pray that the blindness, the darkness that keeps us from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ would be lifted so that we can see him and behold the wonder that is the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. 
that we would stand in awe and amazement of who he is and what he has done for us. That that sacrifice that he made is, is perfect to cover all of our sins, all of our iniquities, all of our transgressions. His resurrection has proven to us that you will not abandon us. That you will not let us see corruption. That in you and in your presence there is fullness of gladness as the Lord is always before us. And so Lord, help us to fix our eyes on him, to call upon his name and be saved. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.